You're listening to Teach Me Thy Statutes, a production of the Ephesus School Network. Blessed art thou, O Lord, teach me thy statutes. The company of the angels was amazed. When they Hi, this is Father Aaron Warwick with Jason Everett, and you are listening to the Teach Me Thy Statutes podcast, episode number 137. Today's reading is from St. Paul's Epistle to the Colossians, chapter 2, verses 13 through 20. Brethren, you who were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, Christ made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, having canceled the bond which stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the principalities and powers and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in him. Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are only a shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on self-abasement and worship of angels, taking his stand on visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the universe, why do you live as if you still belonged to the world? Father, as we've done in the past, when we first examine an epistle uh, in our podcast, I'd like to start by asking you today to give us uh, a brief introduction to the epistle to the Colossians. Sure, and with any New Testament writing, we really need to have a basic understanding of the Roman Empire of its time. And in this sense, Colossae is the capital of a province, and I believe its name is important to the epistle because its name means giant, huge, powerful. It's from the same root word that we get in English, colossal. And of course, St. Paul is teaching and reminding in his epistle that the true powerful one is actually the crucified Messiah and not the Roman emperor who appears to his hearers to have the power. And as he does in all of his epistles, Paul will present a different gospel to the Gentile Roman Colossians. And remember, even this term gospel is something that was borrowed from the Roman Empire, with the Roman emperor himself presenting his plan of rule as being a gospel. So Paul presents a much different gospel to us than that of the Roman emperor. And in this sense, Paul will present the unseen God as the Roman emperor and Jesus Christ as his only perfect emissary. To put it into the language of the empire, Paul presents Jesus as the ideal Roman patrician. To the Colossians, prior to the gospel of Paul, the ideal Roman patrician was someone like the emperor who was powerful, someone who was publicly respected and feared. So how is Jesus presented differently to the Colossian by Paul, and how does Paul present the ideal Roman patrician who's Jesus? Well, we heard it referenced in the reading for today, quote, he disarmed the principalities and powers and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in him, end of quote. So by mentioning this public example or public spectacle as it's sometimes translated, And within the broader context of this epistle, it's clear that Paul is talking about the crucifixion. 
And we've obviously talked about this before, but I think it bears repeating. The Colossians, as Roman citizens, clearly recognized crucifixion as what it is, an embarrassment to the one being hung for public display, a sign of the Roman emperor's strength, and a message sent to anyone who would cross his authority or question his power, a warning not to mess with him. So Paul is making this proclamation, this extremely odd, strange proclamation for any Roman, that this Jesus who was hung as a public example is actually God's chosen one. This Jesus was resurrected by God, and he will execute judgment on those who behave as the Roman emperor and the Roman patricians, namely, that he will execute strict judgment on those who abuse their power, who lord it over those who are weaker or less fortunate, But on the other hand, he will exalt those who exalt and lift up the humble and the meek, the abused and the oppressed. And again, what Paul is teaching is extremely radical to these Roman citizens being addressed in this epistle. However, let me give this brief caveat here that obviously we can tell Paul is writing to the Colossians who already had accepted his message. They were aware previously then of this teaching, so Paul is writing instead to both reaffirm and correct the Colossians. Father, what is it that St. Paul is combating in this epistle? Well, again, we get a sense of that in today's reading, but let me first talk in more general terms, and then I'll, I'll point out how we hear that in what you read for us at the beginning of the episode. Uh, very similar to what Paul has to do with the Galatians, he's doing here also with the Colossians. He's making the argument that if Christ gave them spiritual life, freeing them from observing the lawless commandments of their paganism and saving them from their trespasses, then it is senseless for them to now begin to submit to the idea that they must start observing some of the Jewish external rituals and practices, such as circumcision. Likewise, it's silly for them to worry about observing uh, Roman or pagan holidays and seasons and so forth. In some, we might say that Paul is telling them not to be sucked back into this temptation of relying on external rituals for a sense of self-righteousness, whether that be via the Roman pagan rituals or even the Jewish rituals. Thanks for that overview, Father. So how do we then see those ideas that you just mentioned expressed by Paul in our reading today? Well, I think a couple of places in that passage you read. First, at the beginning of that reading, we hear Paul say, quote, You who were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, Christ made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses, having canceled the bond which stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So here, as I mentioned earlier, it's quite similar to what Paul argues in Galatians, that he talks about how they were dead in their trespasses, and also he specifically then points out the uncircumcision of their flesh, meaning they were not circumcised like the Jews. And why is this important? Well, it's because Paul goes on to note that while yet still uncircumcised, Christ made them alive and canceled their debt, as he says, quote, nailing it to the cross, end of quote. So, It was this work of Christ, this work of him nailing their debt to the cross, that enlivens and saves the Colossians. In other words, they were not saved by becoming circumcised. So Paul's asking, why worry about circumcision now? 
his argument is rhetorical. Are you really going to add something to what God has done through Christ? You're going to try to chip in a little extra? I mean, we often think this way, too, as we focus on externals, but it's so obviously silly in light of the gospel. You're not going to add to what God has done through his servant, Jesus Christ. Rather, you simply respond in thankfulness. And the only way to do that is not to pay tribute to God directly, per se, but to pay tribute by loving your neighbor, loving your enemy, uplifting the weak and and the oppressed. I appreciate that explanation, Father. You mentioned earlier there were a few places where we pick up this teaching against being indebted to external rituals in today's reading. So where else do we hear that? Yeah, so after that section I read earlier, Paul goes on to say, quote, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are only a shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ, end of quote. As I said earlier, you can see from this that Paul is guiding the Colossians to stay free of both the Roman and the Jewish external rituals that do not lead to life. And then that passage from which you read today concludes with Paul warning, quote, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the universe, why do you live as if you still belong to the world? End of quote. Once again, as I said before, why do you act as though you can add to what God has already done? You know, why do we act as though we're still enslaved to the world? Why do you act as though your own self-righteousness can save you? If we do so, we're obviously minimizing or completely neglecting Christ's sacrifice. My last question for today, Father, is how this epistle applies to us today. Do you see any of these heresies prevalent in some forms of Christianity today? Yeah, of course, as the scriptures teach us, there's nothing new under the sun. Human beings are prone to self-righteousness. We all know that the first world, a child says, or at least one of the very first, tends to be uh, the word no. They say that because they hear it so often from us before they can speak. We're telling them not to do things. But some of the other first words I know my kids uttered, and I've heard this from other kids as well, were, I can do it myself. They would say this as they started to gain a little bit of independence and would try to do things like buckle their own seatbelt or get something off of the counter. And obviously we like that kids start to gain independence and that's something necessary for them to survive and thrive over time. But the bad side of that is that in our arrogance, we start to believe that we truly are independent, that we can do it ourselves, but we can't. We can do very few things on our own without the cooperation of our fellow men, without the benefits of living in a society. And we certainly cannot earn salvation on our own, which, as I've taught many times, we should actually see as a freeing proposition, this idea that we cannot earn it on our own. It's not a put down, it's a hand up with the only charge being that we pay it forward to others. But to conclude and to answer this question you asked more directly, the problem of self-righteousness, this sin, this cancer of self-righteousness, it transcends denominations. So when we speak about it, I don't think we can pin it on certain denominations or branches of Christianity and then not on others. It's a sin that can take down any of us, regardless of our denominational allegiance. So the best thing for us to do then is to focus on ridding ourselves of this sickness, this disease of self-righteousness, to not worry about 
how much it impacts other denominations or other people. We have to take the plank out of our own eye before worrying about the speck in others. Thank you, Father. In today's episode, we discussed St. Paul's epistle to the Colossians. Father Aaron began by reminding us that Paul's message to the Gentiles would have been seen as extremely odd, that Jesus, having been crucified, was God's chosen one who would execute strict judgment on those who abuse the weak with their power and exalt those who lift up the humble and meek. St. Paul also urges the Colossians to avoid the temptations of external rituals that lead to self-righteousness, whether they be pagan or Jewish rituals. And in these rituals, we cannot add to what God has already accomplished for us through Jesus Christ. So instead, respond with thankfulness by loving your neighbor and your enemy, while also uplifting the weak and oppressed. We should also keep in mind that we are not immune to self-righteousness as Orthodox Christians. This cancer of self-righteousness transcends denominations. And so we should remember to take the plank out of our own eye before worrying about the speck in our brother's eye. Thank you for listening to Teach Me Thy Statutes. We hope you tune in next week for a new episode. Alleluia, glory to thee, O God. Alleluia, 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 glory to thee, O God.